Let's not mince words. The litigatrix is a bitch. She didn't excel in litigation's testosterone-soaked precincts by playing nice. Like that other professional ix, the dominatrix, the litigatrix knows how to crack a whip. Making men feel pain is part of her job description. That's David Latt. He is founder of Above the Law, reading for us from his 2008 New York Observer piece about female litigators on TV. David coined the term litigatrix to reflect a certain type of woman lawyer. Litigatrix sexualizes a gender-neutral term, litigator, to show the power and dominance of a female litigator. Since David's first use of the term in 2008, it's been used in dozens of articles on Above the Law to describe both fictional and real-life women litigators. The Washington Post adopted David's description in a 2013 profile of White House counsel Kathy Rumler. The Post called her a superstar litigatrix. The newspaper followed up the next day with an article devoted entirely to her shoe collection. Why do we need to know about her shoe collection? When are we going to see a story about a male lawyer and his really cool belts? I'm Olympia Duhart, and I'm a professor at Nova Southeastern University's Shepherd Broad College of Law. This is LST's mini-series about women in the law, where we discuss implicit bias, the leaky pipeline, and more. This week, we examine the ways in which women lawyers are treated in the media, track the evolution of women lawyers in pop culture, and explore the impact of media representations of women lawyers. It's no surprise that the women we talk to do not embrace the term litigatrix. Valerie Barnhart is a partner at a mid-sized firm in Fort Lauderdale. My take on that term is it's offensive. It perpetuates, unfortunately, the stereotypes that are out there where a lot of times female attorneys are regarded by their appearance or certain other connotations rather than the quality of their intellect or their work. Virginia Hotman the appellate litigator we heard from in Hey Sweetie, also objected to the term. It flips it around to something that sounds, um, I don't know, sexually dirty. There's something wrong with you. You're not true to your gender if you are as aggressive as your male counterparts are. It comes across as a, a criticism, almost even a moral criticism. So what was David trying to convey? The jumping off point for the litigatrix essay in The Observer was a series of portrayals all around the same time of women litigators. Uh, There was Patty Hughes, Glenn Close's character in Damages. There was Tilda Swinton's portrayal of uh, Karen Crowder and Michael Clayton. So it was around this time that there were a lot of depictions of women litigators in the media. And I detected this thread running through them of women who were very tough. Uh, And I contrasted that with the earlier depiction of a woman lawyer that many of, well, some of us who are old enough to remember might recall, uh, Allie McBeal by Callista Flockhart. And Allie McBeal was very different. She was girly. She was uh, always questioning herself. She was a little bit flighty. And I was contrasting that depiction uh, with the litigatrix portrayal. I was trying to capture the essence of a strong, confident, 
powerful uh, woman litigator who really uh, takes no prisoners. Nevertheless, the sexual connotations connect quality lawyering to appearance. It all stems from the sensibility that Susan Sontag describes as camp, uh, which is very common among my tribe, gay men. We tend to see the world through a very aesthetic lens. We look for and are attracted to artifice, exaggeration. And one of the things that Sontag talks about in her famous essay, Notes on Camp, is that what is most attractive to a camp sensibility is what goes against the grain of one's sex in terms of traditional conceptions or stereotypes. So for a camp sensibility, the things that are most attractive are beautiful men and masculine uh, women. So I've always been attracted to uh, this notion of a woman lawyer who beats men at their own game. David's colleague has stopped using the term. My name is Stacy Zaretsky, and I am a writer and editor for Above the Law. When I first started, I did use that term. In the six years that I've been working, I don't like to use that term anymore. Women do not need to have a separate special title. This fits the broader trend of packaging accomplished women as novelties. The Washington Post's coverage of Kathy Rumler stressed her fashion style instead of her professional accomplishments. I think one of the worst things that can be done when covering women who are lawyers of any kind is to talk about what makes them feminine. Good, you have nice shoes. Having great shoes has nothing to do with your skills and your competencies as a lawyer. Stacy was more impressed with the way the New York Times deal book approached a piece on a high-profile female attorney. In July 2016, Michael De La Merced wrote for the Times about Faiza Saeed, the first woman to preside over Cravath, Swain, and Moore, one of the oldest and most prestigious law firms in the country. That article was only about all of the amazing things that she has done in her career. The deal book story got it right. But stories meant to highlight achievement routinely manage to partially undermine their own message. Consider, for example, stories about a group of women managing partners and practice group leaders who meet every month in New York. A lot of publications have been referring to this group as a sorority. I do not like that classification. And I was in a sorority myself. Are all of the male leaders of firms who sometimes go to lunch with each other, are they being called a fraternity? No, they're not. Yes, they're in a sisterhood because it's a very small group of women who have ascended to these high-level positions in the firms, but they don't need to be downgraded to a term like sorority. Rick Sheffield explains why this media treatment is so pernicious. My name is Rick Sheffield, and I'm a professor at Kenyon College, teaching and directing the Law and Society program that deprofessionalizes uh, women who become attorneys and judges. And it says it really is a social endeavor as opposed to a professional endeavor. Not even the women on the Supreme Court are immune. In 2015, the National Law Journal ran a story entitled Kagan Dishes on Supreme Court Bar, State of the Union, and Law Schools. Here, Justice Kagan is said to dish on important matters, 
Would the same media outlet describe an interview with Chief Justice John Roberts as a dish session? Portrayals in pop culture can be worse at times. But let's start with one of the earliest representations of women lawyers on screen, Mary Bancroft, in the 1930s crime drama Scarlet Pages. Women lawyers, of course, were anomalies, uh, both in real life, but also in pop culture. Scarlet Pages was one of those first productions that appeared in 1930, and it was a sort of quintessential, uh, we'll make reference to this aberration, this woman lawyer, this lady lawyer, who was doing something, but not really much that was lawyer-like. The early depictions really didn't focus on what women did as professionals, they simply wanted to use the uniqueness or the strangeness of a woman who held or occupied uh, a position as a lawyer. But we don't really want to talk about whether or not she's a good lawyer or what she does as a lawyer. We just want to reference the fact that she was a lawyer. And that really sort of began the, the trend and became the practice. There was very little focus on women as competent professionals until much later. In a Law Review article about women lawyers in pop culture, Rick wrote about how domestic conflict interrupted Mary Bancroft's professional life. Rick says that even 80 years later, not much has changed for women lawyers on screen. One of the most popular programs right now on television is The Good Wife. This fictional lawyer, Alicia Florick, is a classic example. Women lawyers in film and television have, in fact, come a long way. There's a great deal more emphasis upon their professional competence. But what hasn't changed all that much is the depiction of women lawyers in this domestic arena, that it is really quite clear that the story remains that you can't have it all. If you're going to be a successful woman lawyer, you must be willing to sacrifice your private and personal life. Rick tries to help his students understand what real life lawyers do. Students invariably would come to a class where we're talking about the impact of law, and these students seem to have a great deal of knowledge and information. And I was sort of struck by that because I knew as students who were 19 to 22 years old, they had never gone to law school yet, and they had never practiced law, and yet they felt as though they had a, an acute understanding of the way law worked. And it became quite clear to me in the late 1980s that the source of their information was popular culture. They don't know Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They don't know Elena Kagan. They don't know Sonia Sotomayor. But they do know Olivia Pope from Scandal. They do know Alicia Florek from The Good Wife. Here he's not criticizing his students, but pointing out how gaps in knowledge are filled. For many young lawyers, pop culture might be all they know. My name is Joy Diaz-Graf. I work for the federal government. Growing up, I didn't really know any attorneys or anyone that had been to law school. I got the impression that in order for women to be effective attorneys, they come off a lot harsher than the men. They can't be ever soft or empathetic or anything like that. Like They have to be so much more demanding and this is how it's going to be and this is what I want. Two shows Joy watched growing up were L.A. Law and Law and & Order. Even several decades after airing, these shows have a lasting impact on how women lawyers see themselves. But women are not a monolithic group. On-screen portrayals affect viewers in all sorts of ways. Take Pamela Falk, for instance. 
It's Pamela Falk. I'm based at the United Nations as a UN resident correspondent and a foreign affairs analyst for CBS News. I have a different take. Television has a history of portraying women and women attorneys as tough cookies. I think they have done a fairly good job in Law and Order, Boston Legal, Shirley Schmidt, Clara Huxtable, and the Cosby Show, even Ally McBeal. Obviously, there are different things that they portray in each of these different TV shows, but they're women who have a profession, they're women who have their identities, and they're women who can fend for themselves. So I I actually don't think um, it's been poorly portrayed. I think, if anything, uh, women look to them for guidance, how they dress, how what kind of clothes. There's even a website that would tell you what Juliana Margolis and the good wife wore so that you could buy it for court the next day. Uh, And I will admit that I've gone to the website and bought the suit. And I didn't look like her, but I at least thought it was a good professional look. After the break, we talked to a Hollywood screenwriter about her popular television show. But first, our team at Law School Transparency would like to give a special thank you to Elon University School of Law in Greensboro, North Carolina, for hosting a roundtable about women lawyers in the media. At Elon, executive producer Cal McEntee and I moderate a discussion that you can listen to however you are listening now. You can also visit lstradio.com to read transcripts, guest bios, and get a sneak peek at what's to come. I'm Luke Bierman, the Dean of Elon University School of Law. Support for this podcast is provided by Elon Law, the preeminent school for engaged and experiential learning in law. Elon Law offers transformational professional preparation with the only required full-time residency and practice for academic credit. Learn more at law.elon.edu. We talked to Sweta Balakrishnan, a postdoc at NYU Abu Dhabi and a research fellow at the Center for the Legal Profession at Harvard Law School. She told us about the risks and rewards of on-screen portrayals. It's a very, very useful tool to enlighten the public. That's why it's a great socializer, but it also can be used to deeply alienate people and deeply fix preconceived notions. Ally McBeal is like the classic example. If you remember the the early seasons, the focus was really on her being this highly educated lawyer that was dealing with this personal crisis constantly. But when she was in court, she was always clumsy. She she was all over the place. She never really had her thoughts together. And then it was always the, the climax that changed the way she pulled herself together and won a case. It makes for great drama. Don't get me wrong. I watch it. It's a lot of fun. But it sets up what we know to be true about women, like the stereotype that you actually respond negatively to external threats, that in pressure situations, you're likely to choke. The problem with that is that the bits that are really unrealistic, no one is going to remember as unrealistic. But the subtle bits that could be realistic, right, the fact that a woman is clumsy, that will get remembered. The fact that she's clumsy reinforces what you think of women. Society has already told you that women are wonderful in non-professional contexts, but not at work. That stuff gets reinforced, even if you're not actively taking that away from the episode. But the other stuff doesn't. 
On the other hand, missteps make characters more relatable. Kerry Washington plays Olivia Pope on Scandal. Here's Joy Diaz graph again. She does fall in love. She does cry. She has, you know, a weird relationship with her father and her co-workers. She's tough, but she also has different sides that you can kind of see, and she still can be effective at her job. So does Joy emulate Olivia Pope at work? I try. <laughs> I don't know um, if I'm succeeding, but my boss did tell me he is proud of me because I am becoming more assertive and less worried about, you know, what people think about me. It's one of my personality traits that could use a little tweaking because not everybody's going to like me and not everybody should like me all the time. Sueta, the sociologist, says the media representations can be empowering, but she notes that there are risks to portrayals especially for women in historically marginalized groups. This camaraderie and the empathy that comes with having the portrayal of someone like you on screen, it mobilizes, it makes you more visible than you might have been if you weren't on it. So mad men having a really strong woman changed the way we think about women in the workplace in a certain era, like the good wife changes how we think of a single mother going back to the workforce. But at the same time, there's this strong sense of alienation for anybody that doesn't fit that role on the face of it, right? So women of color, women, women that are queer, women that don't identify exactly like the middle class white woman who is against all odds making this mark in the workplace. Why such fuss about how women are portrayed on a television or movie screen? People must recognize that writers take dramatic license to engage the audience. Maybe it's just entertainment. The most harmful are the things that seem harmless because then you think, oh, this is just fun and games. When something is explicitly racist or gendered, on the face of it, just deeply problematic, we know how to mobilize to push back against it. But the problem with implicit biases that get primed and then reinforced is you just think, Oh, come on, like that. You can't take that that seriously. Now, does everything have to be politically correct? You know, th- you know, that was just one time. He was just making fun. Like, do you have to be a feminist about everything? You know, this sort of rhetoric, that's the real problem because then you feel like you're this extreme case scenario for constantly being an angry feminist when in fact what it's doing is normalizing that disparity. That's the problem with fun and games. Of all the things that I think reinforce these gender stereotypes, I don't think legal professionals have the worst case at all. I actually think crime shows do worse things to race than legal shows do to gender, right? So in the larger scheme of things, this is not the biggest violin that exists. But let's not forget that no matter what it is, media is a strong socializer. It still gives people meanings. It still gives them ideas and logic. And that has a gravity of its own. And we need to be aware of it. So how do screenwriters approach writing about lawyers? To find out, we talk to someone in the industry. My name is Erica Green Swafford, and I am a writer on How to Get Away with Murder. How to Get Away with Murder is Shonda Rhimes' latest success and airs Thursdays on ABC. The show stars Viola Davis as Annalise Keating, a law professor and criminal defense attorney. Erica, an award-winning writer for the show, is not a lawyer, but she says that there are a number of legal minds informing character and plot development. 
So there are a couple of lapsed lawyers in the room. We are looking up the ways that it actually happens in the real world. Our researchers are telling us, well, you know, this is the way <laughs> that actually is supposed to be happening. We have a defense lawyer that helps us as a, a consultant on the show. And then, you know, that researcher does reach out to a wide variety of legal minds and institutions and agencies to get the real information. So, you know, we might go, wouldn't it be cool if we can do X? Can we do X? Is that legal? Is that something that happens? The lawyers in the room are like, mm, you know, it sounds like it could be something that might be able to happen. We need to do a little more research. The researcher gets on it, talks to the actual people and says, yo, we want to do this. What do you think? So there's like a, a great feedback loop that happens so that even though with it, we were within a heightened reality, we are trying to get some of the legal legality right. I know I, I get emails from friends and my dad, who also happens to be a lawyer. <laughs> and he's like, that can't happen. But OK, I'm going to let that slide because this is a television show. And I'm like, yeah, we, we do do take some dramatic license on things, but we do like to get a lot of it right. On the show's own website, Annalise is described as brilliant, charismatic and seductive. Her skill in the courtroom is matched by her propensity to push the envelope. Pete Nowak created a quixotic, mercurial, twisty, really smart, damn good at their job character that draws you in as much as some of the choices that she makes repels. It's just she will make the choice that maybe one of us would only dare to make. I, I think that's what draws people in every week. I have a lot of people who love the the bravado, the fact that she is smart, whip smart, the fact that she is flawed like any other human being. As the seasons have been moving on, people love to unfurl even further the reasons behind all of that. So it's not that she's just sort of this mysterious character and you don't understand why she's making certain choices. There are inherent dangers when you show a Black woman crossing ethical lines week after week. After all, media is a forceful socializer. On the other hand, it's not exactly fair to annoy Annalise Keating, the surrogate for all Black female attorneys. She doesn't represent every Black female attorney. She represents Annalise Keating. It's exciting that you get to see somebody in a darker range. This is new and different because we never get to see a character get to do these things. Sure, within our particular universe, in terms of, you know, the world that we live in today, she can be seen as being morally bankrupt. I don't necessarily think you can judge her as being morally bankrupt when you are working on the show. Despite her flaws, many viewers identify with her authenticity and complexity. Many of the most powerful moments in the show take place outside of the courtroom or law school. Everyone took notice when Viola Davis took off Annalise's wig and makeup to show her vulnerability in a delicate scene with her husband. She was like, but I, as a person, would not just wear a wig <laughs> at home all the time. Nobody necessarily really does that. Um, so I want to show what happens when she has to take off the wig. And we made it a moment in the series um, to sort of show her vulnerability. She was taking off armor that she uses outside to actually put on armor inside her home. She was being her whole self inside that house without that wig. Another compelling scene was when her mother Ophelia, played by the iconic Cicely Tyson, combs her grown daughter's hair. 
The scene made Annalise, normally an imposing attorney, immediately accessible. Many black women identify with this moment, and it took me back to sitting on the floor as my Aunt Lessie combed my hair. Erica had similar memories. That was actually from my own experience. I remember quite well sitting between my mother's legs and her scratching up um, my scalp and us discussing issues of the day. And those are those real moments that a woman like an Annalise can have, especially since she's an African-American woman. These are real African-American female experiences. And we want to make sure that people see uh, that we don't wake up you know, dewy with flawless hair, like no one wakes up dewy with flawless hair. You know, people wake up with deadhead and, you know, whatever. But, you know, when you make those revelations and show those vulnerabilities, it actually draws you more into the character. You, um, you know, number one can either completely identify because that is your lived experience, or you also just kind of go, oh, I had never seen something like that, but now I completely understand why that may happen. And even though I don't have a similar experience, I completely get what they are trying to say with this particular scene. And so then I therefore am more invested in this character and in this story as a result. Women lawyers on screen have made important strides. Over time, these portrayals have become more complex and nuanced. And continuing to make these strides is important for achieving equality in the workplace. After all, the media makes its mark on both self-image and societal expectations. Thanks for tuning in. Stick around and listen to the roundtable discussion we held at Elon University School of Law about women lawyers in the media. I'm Olympia Duhart. This episode was produced by Cal McEntee. Thank you to all of our guests and to Kimber Russell, Marissa Olson, Ashley Milne-Tite, Karen Ulrich Stacy and Susan Poser. We also want to thank Diversity Lab for a generous donation very early in the project. Next week, we examine the leaky pipeline. Women in the Law is a production of Law School Transparency. To learn more about LST, visit lawschooltransparency.com. To learn more about this mini-series, visit lstradio.com/women.